Hi, today's reading is from Hebrews 5 verses 11 um, through to chapter 6 verse 8. Warning against falling away. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the, the foundations of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain often falling on it and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. We're all familiar with warning labels. Uh, they are on just about everything that we encounter. And the more serious the potential danger, of course, the more clear and graphic the warnings tend to be. I know you're familiar with the warnings on cigarette packaging. I mean, if you want clear and graphic warnings, that's where you need to go, right? Uh, smoking causes mouth cancer. I mean, that's as clear as it can get. And then there's a picture of someone with really advanced mouth cancer. Like, and, and that is a very graphic, very clear warning of a very significant danger. And, of course, we would do well to pay attention to those warnings. In our text today, we have a very graphic and very clear warning. And just like warning labels in the rest of our lives, we would do well to pay attention to this warning as well. In terms of where we're up to in the book of Hebrews, the author has been uh, talking about and explaining the greatness of Jesus and the uh, inestimable value and benefit of having him in our corner. Uh, when we come before God, having Jesus with us, someone who understands who we are but represents God fully as our great high priest is of immense value for us. But he's interrupted his explanation to pause to kind of make sure that his listeners, those who are reading and hearing this message, haven't drifted off. It's kind of like the teacher kind of imagining their, their classes drifting off and stopping and kind of asking a pointed question. You know, Jimmy, what did I just say? And when Jimmy can't say anything, kind of berating the whole class about how they need to be paying greater attention because there's you know, an exam coming or whatever it might be. I mean, let me paraphrase for you chapter 5, verse 11 to verse 14. You can almost hear the author's kind of sad sigh and the slow shake of his head as he basically looks at them all and says, you know, it's a real shame that you guys aren't quite ready for this. You know, I thought that you might be ready for this, but obviously you're not. In fact, even though this is really important, you're not even trying to learn. 
And it's not that it's that complicated. You could probably teach this if you wanted to, but you obviously haven't advanced that far. You know, and even though it's so simple and you're not paying any attention, I suppose it's unfair of me to expect that you would demonstrate this in your life if you obviously haven't figured it out in your head. You know, why should I expect you to live lives of righteousness? Or why should I expect you to be able to discern between right and wrong if you haven't even kind of grasped the basics of it? Public shaming, isn't it? In an honor and shame culture, this was meant to really shock his uh, readers, his hearers, to kind of go, oh, we, <laughs> wow, teacher's cranky. Uh, we need to pay closer attention. And let me just draw your attention to that last little phrase, this idea of, uh, of relating ourselves, or, or dealing with rather, the distinguishing of good and evil. Uh, this does sound similar to the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden, but in this context is perhaps more likely to do with the, uh, the law and the response of the people of God. In places like Leviticus 10 or Leviticus 11, the people of Israel are told that they must learn to distinguish between the clean and unclean, the holy and the common, uh, as they uh, work out what obedience to the law and relationship with God looks like. Uh, in 1 Kings chapter 3, uh, Solomon asks for a discerning heart to be able to discern between right and wrong that he might adequately and appropriately lead the people of God. In Ezekiel 22, the priests are censured for their failure to discern between the holy and the common and the fact that they were teaching people that there was really no significant difference either. This idea of distinguishing between good and evil is actually very important for the author because his whole argument to some degree is this. You are drifting away from the ultimate good in Jesus, you should be able to discern that this, the good in Jesus, is so good that you'd never want to drift away. And so the author has, has made this really clear point, don't you think? He's kind of shocked his readers into paying more attention because they are in danger. As far as the author is concerned, there is a real potential threat that they face. And he really wants to encourage them to that. And so in chapter six, uh, he opens uh, by exhorting them to leave behind the elementary teachings. And, and I think it's worth noting that while he has just said you're really slow to learn and you're not even trying and uh, you're kind of your babies and you're just kind of with the sippy cup of spiritual truth rather than actually being mature and onto solid food. The fact that he here then says, let's leave those elementary teachings behind suggests that the author does indeed feel that his readers can handle this stuff. Uh, that initial comment was meant to kind of shock them out of their stupor, uh, make them pay more careful attention. But after this brief exhortation to leave behind the elementary teachings, he then provides them with a really stark warning. If you have a look in chapter 6, starting in verse 4. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. It's a pretty uh, hard word, wouldn't you say? It's kind of a frightening hard word when you think about it. 
And, and it's actually important that we pause here for just a moment because it, it's, it's kind of easy for us to be just a little bit distracted from the author's um, main idea here uh, by the theology of these verses. Stick with me on this one because I think what we have is the temptation to start thinking about others rather than thinking about ourselves. Now, normally, of course, we're trying to stop thinking about ourselves and start thinking about others. That's kind of the whole point, right? But here, the theology of this impossibility can lead us to think not about ourselves per se, but to start thinking about those that we know, family and friends who once professed Jesus and who have wandered away, who have fallen away, who have stopped following after Jesus. And we can end up worried for uh, their future salvation. Is it possible for them to be saved again? And this just subtly takes us away from the focus that the author has because he's not really wanting his readers to engage in the theological dilemma and the pastoral concerns, but to take seriously this warning that they are drifting away from this great good. However, the questions raised by this are really quite important. And so I think it's appropriate just to take a couple of minutes to briefly address the theology and the pastoral concerns here. Uh, just as an aside, this is probably a really good question for the big three. Hint, hint, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. So if you want to kind of add that in, we can follow that up later this week. But when we're talking about um, the, a passage like this, we are led to one of the really key uh, principles of interpretation, which is that we interpret scripture, particularly a small, difficult passage like this, in the light of all of scripture. And so the question is, what does the rest of Scripture have to say about restoration after having fallen away? And, and really briefly, uh, and in, in a huge kind of summary statement, the rest of Scripture is very, very clear. That the Lord responds positively, and He always responds positively, to genuine repentance. I can't think of any other section in scripture where someone has genuinely repented and the Lord has said, oh, I'm sorry, it's impossible for me to forgive you. Uh, that just doesn't really match the character of God. And when it comes to things that are impossible for God, and there are a few, the author to Hebrews actually gives us one when he says that it's impossible for God to lie. The things that are impossible for God are inherent in his character. He cannot lie, not because there's some law out there that says he can't, but because his character is truthful and honest and faithful. And so it seems ludicrous to suggest that our actions, even by walking away from him and coming back, would tie his hands and make it impossible for him to do something. As if someone who had walked away had come back to the Lord and the Lord says, I see your heart. I see that you are genuinely sorry for having walked away. I can see that you are genuinely repentant and that you have turned to me, but I'm sorry, my hands are tied. I simply cannot forgive you. I'd love to, but I can't. But that, of course, then leads us back to the text, because if this warning is not meant to be some sort of literal statement of a theological position that states it's impossible to return, then what is the author getting at? And here again, I think we turn to another interpretive principle, which is paying attention to the original context. And for us, we want to pay some attention again to the language of patrons and benefactors. We've talked about this a number of times over the last several weeks. The idea that in uh, the first century Greco-Roman world, 
The social fabric was held together by honor and shame and patron benefactor relationships. The idea that those who were wealthy and influential and powerful were to be patrons and generous to those who were less wealthy, less powerful, less influential. And that those who were the benefactors of that were under social obligation to express gratitude and acknowledgement to those who had blessed them through their generosity. And the author seems to be picking up this language. And I, I came across this idea in David De Silva's commentary on the book of Hebrews, a really insightful um, observation into the uh, patron benefactor language. Because essentially what De Silva points out is that the author is addressing benefactors. And if you were to read some of the wider literature on uh, the patron benefactor language written to those who have received generous gifts, you will find that the language used is often quite strong and quite vivid in stating how important it is that those who have received gifts express appropriate gratitude. Think about it from a human relationship, from your own relationships. If you had given something of great value or you had done something to help someone else, you'd given them a leg up or introduced them to someone or helped them secure a loan or whatever it might have been, something quite generous that, that was quite significant on your behalf and they never thanked you, never acknowledged you, talked badly about you and, and kind of ignored you. And then they came back to you later on and said, would you help me out again? What are you going to say? I mean, what patron is going to help someone a second time who has treated them so poorly? Well, no one. You might say that it's impossible for someone who has treated a patron so poorly to expect to be given the same gift a second time. This is the language that the, that the author of Hebrews is using. He's almost using a lesser to greater argument, basically saying to his readers, if, if, if uh, in a human relationship, you're not going to get a second chance if you treat a human patron badly, what do you think is going to happen if you walk away from the tremendous benefits of God in Christ and then come back? So this is less about the impossibility of forgiveness and more about the utterly shameful behavior of walking away from what has been given to us so clearly in Jesus. It's a pretty significant warning, isn't it? It's a reminder of how much we have received in Jesus and a reminder to take seriously those obligations. Well, thankfully, the author doesn't end with this really stark warning. He actually turns and basically, I guess, becomes a little gentler. After the, the harsh beginning, he then says in verse 9 of chapter 6, Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case. He believes that there's enough evidence in their life to suggest that they're going to be just fine. And he encourages them to be diligent to the very end. He says in verse 12, we do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. 
And this reminds us of something I think we've touched on a couple of times so far in this series. And that is that the author's view of salvation is not something that we um, achieve all at once when we place our faith in Jesus. But like uh, in Pilgrim's Progress, that great Christian allegory, uh, Christian is forgiven of his sins early in the story, but then has to progress to the celestial city. And along the way, there are all sorts of obstacles and traps and potential pitfalls that threaten to keep him from arriving at his ultimate destination. For the author of Hebrews, salvation is something that is inherited. It's received at the end. It is something that must be uh, endured for and persevered for. And yet in the midst of all of this, there's again, I think, just a, a really subtle little trap for us here. And the trap is this. We hear the warning. And I hope that you have heard this warning. I hope that you've taken it seriously. I hope that the Holy Spirit applies this to your heart. But when we hear this warning, a reminder of just how serious it is to step away from or allow ourselves to drift away from the benefits of God. It's appropriate for us to turn and look at our own lives, isn't it? To ask ourselves, do I see any evidence of fruit in my life? To ask ourselves the questions, do I hunger after that solid food that demonstrates that I am growing to maturity? But the subtle trap is this, that we can end up thinking that it's all about our actions, our endurance, our diligence. And that has two really serious implications for us. First of all, somewhat ironically, it means that we actually end up drifting away from Jesus. I mean, the author has gone on about how much Jesus does for us. And yet we can subtly say, I've got this. I'm just going to work harder. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to do better. And we end up forgetting that Jesus has not only been of enormous benefit in forgiving our sins in the past, but also to enabling us to endure, to receive what has been promised. If we begin to put too much focus on our own activity, our own diligence, our own dutiful response, then we can subtly turn away from Jesus. And secondly, and I think perhaps, I don't know if it's more important, but I think it's really significant. It can end up really sucking the joy out of our journey of faith. If it all just becomes duty and doing and trying harder, uh, there's not a lot of joy in that. And while it's important that we strive to, to follow after Jesus and seek to be as faithful as we can, there's not a lot of joy in duty. It tends to be a little dry. And the author's idea of salvation is, is, is kind of a little bit like the relationship between an engagement and a marriage. Uh, when, when people place their faith in Jesus, it, it, it's like they've entered into the engagement phase. And an engagement, of course, marks a really significant change in a relationship. When a man and a woman have ceased to be simply a boyfriend and a girlfriend and have become fiancés. But the whole point of an engagement is not simply to be engaged for the rest of your life. The point of an engagement is ultimately the wedding and then the marriage beyond it. And the period of engagement is meant to prepare you in a joyful way for what is to come. There's an expectation that, uh, that is uh, fulfilled as the couple work towards the preparations. 
whether that be, you know, finding a marriage celebrant in a location for the reception or trying to work out which five people they're going to invite to their wedding in these times, whatever it might be, to do some uh, marriage preparation so that their marriage is as fulfilling as it can possibly be. But in the midst of all of that work, there is joy because of what has been set before them. If we think that the Christian life is all about our duty, about all that we do, not only do we walk away from Jesus ever so subtly, but we also be closer to losing joy. The joy that comes from following Jesus and attaining to all that has been promised to us in him. So as we kind of pause in this text, here's where we're up to. Let us press on with joyful gratitude for all that Jesus has done in the past and continues to do in the future, that we might together inherit all that has been promised to us. Amen.